And welcome to another edition of the Beer Ivana Podcast, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's an uncharacteristically bright and sunny day here in Portland. On a December morning, or oh. I guess afternoon it is now. Yeah. My kids were very disappointed that there was no snow. There was some hint that we might get snow in Portland. For and the listener, uh, any hint that there might be snow is reason to shut the entire city down. Yeah. So and, we all and, get very excited. And the schools. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there are parts of Portland that are pretty high. Well, by being high, like a thousand feet high, but we're down here at sea level most of the, most of the town. And so there was some snow yesterday, apparently in the yeah. hills. And sometimes the school district will get a little bit freak, freaked out about a tiny bit of snow and just shut everything down. And my kids love it, so yeah. I try to remind them that they have to pay for it later in the end of the school year. You and I grew up in snowy regions where it would have taken like a a, a freak of nature, a hundred year storm, to get us oh, out of school. Yeah, in Wisconsin. Yeah, you basically have to have a <laughs> blizzard before that. I mean, I remember trudging through snow that's like two feet deep. Yeah. Like, oh, come on. <laughs> uh, I remember very, very few snow days in Wisconsin. It had yeah. to get pretty bad. Uh, okay, so this is the Beer Vada podcast. With me, of course, is Jeff Allworth, author of the Beer Bible from Workman Publishing, a perfect holiday gift if you are out there shopping for your loved one or someone you uh, no, uh, Cider Made Simple, another gift uh, from Chronicle Publishing. Uh, you can find him blogging at Beervana. Uh, he tweets at Beervana and has the Beervana Facebook page. Um, he also uh, writes for and uh, blogs at All About Beer Magazine. Thank you, Patrick. And you are Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, uh, as well as a research fellow at the Center for Applied Microeconomic Research at the Sao Paulo School of Economics. Very good. C-Micro. Um, and you can find him blogging at Beeronomics. And that's not a lie. I actually... I was... You, 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 you jumped in there. I was going to give you the credit. I saw that. It was, not, it was an actual post of not fake content. And not fake, but not entirely original either. So. Well, but it, but, it but, it, but it wasn't just reposting a link to this podcast. Well, that's true, which is what the rest of the year was all about. <laughs> it was real content. I, by God, it was I, impressive. I even, I've even posted a couple times in my... Uh, in my economics blog as well lately. So I know. Things, I know. Things you're, have changed. Something's great. You're back. You're back in action somehow. <laughs> That's right. And you're going to be given a, a, a speech tomorrow um, about uh, beer, which That's, is very cool. That's right. And actually, it dovetails perfectly with today's pod. Uh, I will be tomorrow at um, the Sprout Food Collective in Springfield, Oregon, uh, right next to Eugene, Oregon. Uh, um, in their ideas on tap is the Univers University of Oregon Museum of uh, natural and cultural histories, ideas on tap lecture series, and I'll be talking about the business of beer, whether there's a boom or a bubble. And they're serving beer with it, yes. Claim, I think that, claim I, 52, I saw something Claim 52 that. beer apparently will be on tap, and I think there's food to purchase as well. I think the idea is it's a science pub idea. So right. you come, you drink beer, you eat food, and then we chat. It, so I had two days ago uh, a pint of Claim 52 Fluffy IPA. It's extremely nice, and um, so if they're serving that, and people go, they should drink that. All right, go go and drink go fluffy. For the fluffy. I will. I will stay tell. for the stay for the lecture. <laughs> <laughs> Only after you've had a few, of course. Yeah, uh, that makes it palatable. Okay, and uh, something new we have to do right now. Uh, Beervana is brought to you by Guinness. They've rolled out new creations like Guinness Nitro IPA and Blonde American Lager, and now introduce Antwerpen Stout and Rye Pale Ale. And by All About Beer Magazine. Since 1979, award-winning beer and brewery news, reviews, and insight, in print and online. Subscribe today at allaboutbeer.com slash subscribe. 
whoa, we got through that. That was good. But, hey, we did, we did all right. So I buried the lead. We have sponsors. We have sponsors. Thank you so much for uh, our host who is sponsoring us and also uh, the Diashiao group who is, of course, the owner of, of Guinness. It's fantastic. Yeah, uh, I feel somehow elevated now. I know. I do, too. Somebody like, cares. Like we're not just sitting in your, in your <laughs> dining room with a Macintosh and two cheap microphones. Uh, what are we going to do with all our riches, Jeff? I don't know. I'm waiting for my bag of money to come. Have you seen yours? Uh, no, but I've been out car shopping, you know, yeah, yeah, at yeah. the Lamborghini dealership. <laughs> <laughs> well, I write about beer for a living, so I'll be paying back taxes and, uh, you know, all these, all these debts I have to take care of. Uh, yeah, maybe we can actually buy better microphones. Oh, these microphones actually these are because we invested in them. But maybe I can maybe we can pay ourselves back for the mi- the money we That's spent right. on the microphones. Um, anyway, we're really happy to uh, have this sponsorship, and um, we hope that you uh, enjoy the show. Yeah, uh, thank you, Guinness, and all about beer magazine. Uh, I do have one idea we might want to think about. I love our freak fandango, but it might be time to freshen up the music. And I'm thinking Irish sponsor, we should get. A Pogue song. I wonder how much it would cost to, to license a Pogue's song yeah, for our intro. Yeah, I think you're not using your economics head there. You're using your, <laughs> you're using your heart, not your brain on that one. That'd be sweet. Uh, <laughs> and I am told by people in the know that the Pogues were actually an English band, so keep well, that that's in true, mind. But shh, shh, yes. Um, so let's move on to the topic, shall we? Yes. Uh, today we're going to turn the tables and return to a subject near and dear to many hearts, uh, Beeronomics. So we're going to be talking to you. You're going to be the, the main talker here today. That's right. Uh, today's show. Well, uh, sort of. Well, yeah, it's true. Well, well, we'll get to that, man. Got to let me do the lead in. It's so jumping. rare. I keep jumping. Uh, on. I know. Uh, today's show, we will uh, be touching on three topics, and Patrick will walk us through uh, these three timely issues. Um, we'll also listen to an interview I did with Nicole Fry, managing partner for First Beverage Group. Uh, which is a company that invests in and advises other companies uh, and which has been involved in several of their recent brewery acquisitions um, and including some of the big ones that everybody knows about. So that's right. She's a smart cookie and we talked to her. I did an interview with her, a relatively short interview. um, And I think that you will have a lot to say when you hear what she has to say. So we'll do that and then we'll talk about a couple other things as well. And we'll do, we'll scratch our beeronomics itch today on pod. Yeah, what's going on with all these mergers and acquisitions and equity investments in beer is always a topic that people want to talk to me about. In fact, it's a it was the motivating topic for the talk I'm giving tomorrow on Eugene. So it's nice to hear from an actual insider with real knowledge, right? Just, rather than just the opinions that uh, of a random economist. <laughs> well, informed by all your vast wealth of info, right? So let's turn to the news. Yes, let's do that. Um, I probably shouldn't have put this first one first, should I? It should be the last one. Let's, let's do that one last. Let's do All the right. first last, because the, the last will lead into the next. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, so let's go to the second one. Um, the Brewers Association released some fascinating information um, about the state of the industry, and one of the important pieces that leapt out to me was that uh, 25% of craft sales, so these are the breweries that are composed the uh, breweries they represent, mm-hmm. uh, are uh, 25% are IPAs. Um, which I think is continuing to grow and grow and will probably continue to grow. Um, increasingly, the, the United States is an IPA uh, country yep. as far as that, that segment goes. Um, and then another thing they, they pointed out that I thought was cool and hopeful is that um, they, I don't know how they came up 
with the, the category, but they call them sessionable styles. And they mentioned pale lagers, pilsners, and golden ales. Yeah. And those, although they're not a massive amount of the market, they're up 33%. So yeah. that's good. It's interesting because it's very easy to try to extrapolate um, from what we see here in Portland and in Oregon. Um, but you never know how representative we are. We tend to be kind of an outlier in many ways. Um, but it's certainly true here that sessionable styles are yeah. are very hot and growing. Um, and they're some of my favorites, so that's good. Yeah, exactly. Me too. You want to take the next one? Uh, research firm Cowan & Company released a report last week that beer sales are down 2% in Oregon, Washington, and Colorado. Um, this was surprising to us because the numbers we've seen from the Oregon Brewers Guild show robust growth. But, of course, the caveat is that it's the mass market sector that's really suffering. Uh, economy beer volumes are down 2.4%, and premium domestic volumes, things like Bud Light, Coors Light, etc., are down 4.4%. Craft is decelerating, but not out of step with national trends. So there's a really key, key part of this, uh, this paragraph that I missed when I wrote it, and I apologize because I threw it to you, and you did not know that. So this is a gaffe. Sorry, uh, everybody because this this uh, whole research was about the effect of marijuana on beer sales. Oh. So this is why these three states were relevant here, Colorado, Washington, and Oregon. Um, and the big headline news was that marijuana was bad for beer, but actually it looks like it's maybe not be affecting craft beer. It's mm -hmm. only affecting mass market lagers. So that was fascinating. Yeah, and this is just an overall, you know, correlations here. So the whole correlation causality. It would be interesting to see how... Uh, how uh, marijuana prices affect the sales of craft beer. So if there's fluctuation in prices, then you can get a much better measure of how that actually impacts craft beer sales. Yeah, and it's so early. I think it's both yeah. markets are in flux, and it's really early, and it's hard to disaggregate the two groups. And yes. uh, the whole thing is um, preliminary at, very, at the very best. Yeah, yeah. And there's just as much reason to expect that uh, it would help beer sales as hurt. So. Uh, Okay, yeah, which will be interesting. Now, now, now that we've shifted the first one to last, yeah, the big news of the the week and and uh, maybe the the month or the the year even, um, the Brewers Association also announced yesterday that the number of American breweries has exceeded five thousand for the first time. Um, so that's a lot of breweries here in the United States. Five thousand five, to be precise. Yes, although when they announced that, I mean, a brewery like that. Don't that's right. That was that's always yesterday. That's already yesterday's news. Yeah. Two, by now, it's probably by five thousand thirty-six. Something like two breweries a day open. So yeah. it's just it's a it's a totally moving number. It's nutty, but it is over five thousand. And um, when you look back at history, um, you you look back all the way. Uh, into the midst of time, and the United States never had that many breweries, as far as we know. Yeah, so. in fact, it's, that's a graphic that I'm going to present tomorrow at the, at the talk. Um, it's a fascinating graphic. It goes back to 1873. It's from the Brewers Association. And uh, what it shows is the, the number of breweries through time. And what you see is early on in the early uh, 1870s, 1880s, um, we started with about 4,000, a little over 4,000 breweries. And uh, that number quickly uh, went down almost in, in half, uh, and then continued its, um, uh, descent, um, all the way down to prohibition where it went, went to zero. Um, but that trend was sort of a secular trend, um, continuing downward. Uh, and then once prohibition ended, the number of breweries popped back up, but kept going down, down, down until the mid 1970s, early, early eighties, uh, when there were just a, 
a handful of breweries left in the United States. What's a secular trend? Oh, uh, sorry, one that just continues in the same in the same way, so it doesn't go up or down. That's an economic term, huh? Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> As a religious studies major, uh, I, I know that uh, term in an entirely different context. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Sorry. Sorry, a little term of art there. Ah, interesting. Uh, so... Uh, so looking at looking at a graph, what you would see is from like 1873 to about 1885, maybe uh, a, a decline from 4,000 breweries to about 2,000 breweries. And uh, we were just talking about this before we went on air. Um, I was thinking about this as you know early on. Uh, uh, the scale of brewing is quite small, transportation is quite hard, and probably most brewing is happening on site in your local pub, and it's probably not very good. <laughs> right. Um, back in the, the, the mid-19th century, uh, refrigeration, I may have existed, but it was certainly not accessible to most breweries, so they would have been um, dependent on ice, you know, in ice caves. A lot of the companies back then were so-and-so brewing an ice company. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was, really, it was really hard for breweries to grow, and they were small. For sure. Yeah, and uh, and then the Germans came along. Yeah, and started making these wonderful Pilsner style beers. They knew how to make good beer. I think the quality of beer uh, was not not nearly as high until the German immigrants got here and brought their lager beer. Yeah, and that sort of coincided with the onset of uh, the Industrial Revolution. So suddenly, scale was more achievable, transportation was cheaper, and the consolidation of beer production started. And then that just kept going and going and going. And then in the post-war years when industrial products were really in vogue and people ate canned peas instead of fresh stuff, (laughs) drank freeze-dried coffee rather than fresh coffee. Uh, Ah, those were the good days. Those were the good days. And they drank drank their industrial lager, mass market lager. And that continued all the way until basically the craft beer revolution in the mid-1980s. So let's hold off on uh, that or use that as a segue to leap into our actual content here because... um, how we got from 80 or whatever breweries, less than 100 breweries, to 5,000 is a fascinating story. Yeah. And one, um, as an economist, I hope you shed some light on. Yeah. So let's just shift over uh, to the main content here. Um, we will talk about this, uh, and we will listen to this interview with uh, Nicole Fry. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to talk a little bit about a topic that was interesting to me Um over Thanksgiving when I was in New England, nice. where there are all these New England IPAs that I keep hearing about and I'm somewhat familiar with. And I was excited to go and settle the the, the issue and learn all about them. And then I couldn't find any. They, were just, they just weren't <laughs> available anywhere. And I thought, this is so weird. This is the most popular beer style in America right now among beer geeks. And I'm in New England. I can't buy one for love or money. That's so right. we're going to talk about this scarcity. And you emailed me. You said, why? And so we'll talk about my response. That's right. Because it's a, it's a weird issue. Um, but one I think all of us care about. So we'll get to all of that. Let's jump back into this. Um, we got, we, you described how we got down to 80 breweries. Mm-hmm. Now we're at 5,000. So what happened? Ah, well, the craft beer revolution happened, which is an interesting mix of uh, liberalization. Uh, well, I guess I would start by saying sort of a, an increase uh, in interest in artisanal products, uh, an increase in... Um, interest in homebrewing, uh, a decrease in uh, the regulatory environment or, like I said, liberalization of a regulatory environment that allowed people to start brewing and selling the beer they brew, uh, along with a demand, um, uh, what I call a derived demand, but uh, people learning that beer can be a lot 
tastes a lot different and a lot better than perhaps the beer that they, they were used to. Uh, and so it became this um, very interesting cycle, self-perpetuating cycle of uh, growing a, a growing base of people who are interested in craft beer and, and getting a taste for craft beer and uh, providers of craft beer who were finding the business environment more uh, amenable to um, um, uh, to selling beer. And, and off we went. This process, so we, we watched uh, in the 19th century, a lot of breweries mm-hmm. down to consolidation and then kind of now more breweries. Is this a pattern? When I look at the history of beer, um, the fear of consolidation or the complaints about consolidation seem to have started during the Hanseatic League uh, <laughs> shipping trade, you know, like 800 years ago. Yeah. Is this a, is this a churn? Like, does, it, does the pendulum go back and forth? Well, so the... I, I would say a few things about that. One, the same old trope that I've talked about many times in this blog, which is that you can escape the economies of scale in brewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, price is always important. Um, people are willing to pay more for a different product. But if you are competing with something similar and you have a lower price, typically, uh, you'll do better. Um, and that means that uh, growing big is a competitive strategy, um, even uh, potentially in craft beer. On the other hand, uh, this new market for craft beer, I would argue, is based a lot on things like novelty and uh, stories and personal connections and local. Mm. Um, and that is a countervailing force towards um, uh, the growth. And I think what we're seeing right now, the most fascinating thing I think we're seeing right now is these big regional breweries, the New Belgiums, the Boston Beer, the Sierra Nevada, they're starting to show some signs of weakness. Right. Um, and I think that's because they're getting so big. Um, one, one of the things you have to do when you get so big is sort of uh, keep, um, uh, I was going to say flogging, but that's kind of a pejorative, but keep, <laughs> keep pushing your major, your major beers. So, for right. example, San, you know, uh, Sam Adams' Boston Lager, uh, Sierra Nevada's Pale, New Belgium's uh, fat tire uh, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, there's all these new different beers that are continually hitting the market and part of being a craft beer enthusiast is often looking for these new tastes and new flavors and new experiences and so it's um, it's hard to both be novel and be big um, and it's also hard to be sort of uh, local and cool and have buzz when you're big and everywhere this is an interesting thing that um, I have not it doesn't get a lot of attention, and I've never actually put my, and it'll put my brain around it. So, Sierra Nevada Pale is a good example. It's mm-hmm. a it's a beer that people admire. It's actually a pretty respected beer. You can yeah. talk about um, Boston Lager is another uh, fine example, and what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, these beers, even though they're respected, they don't get a lot of attention. They're they're not dry. People aren't writing articles about them. Right. Nobody's uh, going on Untapped and talking about them. That's right. And yet they sell. Far and away, way, 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 way more than, you know, um, uh, Sierra Nevada's new Otrevez Goza, you know, right. that which is getting a lot of attention and, and um, yeah, it's a good beer and it's a cool beer, but it's never going to sell in the quantities that uh, Sierra Nevada Pale does. So their margins are shink- shrinking a little bit on Sierra Nevada, but it's still a giant, the pale sure. is still a giant beer. And, oh, yeah. and we kind of, it seems like we sort of ignore this, this giant market. Like most of the people drinking most of the craft beer are not drinking Goza. They're drinking Sierra Nevada pale. That's right. And, 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 uh, 
it's a pretty good, I mean, I'd be quite happy to be Ken Grossman in charge of Sierra Nevada. It's a great business. It's doing really well. Uh, it's just interesting to see where they're starting to maybe hit some headwinds, I suppose as I would I would call it. Um, there might be a limit to how big they can grow. Like, uh-huh. I don't know that Sierra Nevada is going to be the next Budweiser. Right. And so the fear of huge consolidation in craft beer, to me, I think is a little bit um, uh, misplaced. I think that there's sort of a natural limits to how far you can grow. I think Sierra Nevada Pale is going to be with us. It's an exceptional beer. I still buy it from time to time. It's usually a good price point, for mm-hmm. example. Um, and it's usually a crowd pleaser for if there's um, uh, uh, craft beer enthusiasts and uh, uh, people who are more used to macro lagers. They can usually get them to drink some Sierra Nevada Pale. So uh, so it's, it's, it's a perfectly fine business. I think we'll still see expansion of these regional breweries like Sierra Nevada and others have, um, West Coast breweries have, have, uh, are building, um, East Coast, uh, brewing facilities to be closer to those markets. Um, I think that'll still happen, but I don't think that it pretends that the, the, uh, the death of small independent local craft beer. Yeah. It's interesting. It, it, it goes to show that, uh, the beer market is really complex now. It's yes. not an easy job to, to sell beer. You've got to, if you're going to be a big brewery, you want to have a flagship that's a workhorse that keeps its numbers up, but that's not enough. You've got to, if you want to grow, you need to find other, other markets. Um, it looks like flagship brands maybe top out at a million or 2 million. Mm-hmm. Um, even when we look at things like, um, Blue Moon and Shock Top, they're not getting bigger than that. So right. that looks to be like kind of a natural cap for a, for one brand of beer. Yeah. And if your if your brewery wants to be a 5 million barrel brewery, you're going to have to figure out how to how to you know it's it's great to make a barrel aged beer that you can sell for fifteen dollars a bottle, but you're not going to get very big that way. Yeah, and so I think that's you're also seeing the strategy. We've talked about this before, but you're seeing the strategy like AB InBev, which you know you buy a bunch of these breweries then, and then all together maybe they're right, <laughs> maybe they're a five million <laughs> five million uh, barrel brewery, uh, but they're all basically regional. They're all doing some interesting things. They're, they leave them relatively independent so that they can keep coming up with you know products that keep the buzz going and keep the brand hot um i think that's more or less what's in the mind of the um the high-end division of the of ab yeah it's interesting um you you have a slide in in your for your um lecture that shows the the volume of all of craft beer compared to the volume budweiser right and budweiser the the line the 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 trend line for budweiser is down and the trend line for craft is up and at one point all the volume of craft exceeded Budweiser, the one brand, at something around 15 million barrels. Um, if I were, 16, yeah. 16 barrels. Okay, yep. There you go. Um, you know, uh, 40 years ago, all the beer sold in America was mass market lager. Right. So, the, the, so, the, so the playing field was branding. It was how do you sell your brand of mass market lager. Mm-hmm. And now it's so much more complex. you got to figure out what kind of beer people are going to want and how – to make it fresh and interesting so they keep buying it and all these different flavors and all these different yeah, what configurations. Are the, and what are the, the latest styles that people are are excited to try? And um, so you kind of have to chase, you chase around uh, those changing tastes all the time. Yeah, it's weird, weird times. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's another bullet point I have on a slide, which is it's a, it's a fat, for me, for me, it's a fascinating mix of the industrial with the uh, artisanal. Mm-hmm. Um, where you have an industrial product essentially that you can keep 
reproducing and mass producing if you want um, but it's also an artisanal product so people are always looking for different flavors different tastes different styles um, and so to try to manage that tension is i think the art of being a good uh, brewing company or brewing manager or owner of a brewer trying to figure that out yeah it's interesting well, should we listen to uh, some of this Nicole Fry interview? Because I asked her many of these same questions. Let's Somebody do. who's actually got skin in the game, who's who's trying to uh, think about where money will be, because at the end of the day, that's what all these companies are trying to do. Um, and given the, the the uncertainty, it makes it very interesting to see what these big breweries are are thinking about in terms of where. You know where to where to invest their money and, and how to invest their money. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet, so I'm fascinated to hear what she has to say. I know. I wish you had been able to join me on the conversation. I think you would have asked better questions than I did, but I did my best. And uh, we can have we can bring you in uh, after we listen to the interview, or maybe even while we're listening to the interview, if you want to jump in and say something. Sounds good. And um, and we will uh, we'll get your reflections on that too. All right. So this is Nicole Fry, who is managing partner for First Beverage Group. Uh, so what we want to talk to you about today a little bit is the way that somebody in your position thinks about beer and the beer market. And we're interested in um, both the way you see the market and the way you assess breweries. So why don't we talk a little bit about um, the market to begin with. Um, in general terms, how do you see the market for beer right now, uh, where it is and where it's headed? Um, and we're, I think we're all interested in the, the, where mass market loggers are headed and where craft, the craft space, as you call it, is headed. Yeah, I think, you know, I think everyone's aware. I mean, the mass market loggers have been slowly, you know, in a, a steady sort of low single digit rate of decline over, you know, many years. Um, and that, that has been offset by growth in, in imports and craft. Um, craft in particular over the last several years has grown um, at, you know, very strong double-digit rates and grown even higher in dollar value than um, than volume given the premiumization of the category. Um, and so, you know, with that growth, there's been a lot of entrance <laughs> into the space as, as some people have seen some, you know, very, um, you know, attractive brands being acquired for crazy multiples. I think that's attracted a lot of interest an investor interest in the space, and so you've got a dynamic lately where there's been, you know, a, a dramatic increase in the number of breweries over the last few years, and I think finally, I think, some, you know, we all knew that that double-digit growth couldn't last forever, and I think we're now starting to see with, with the data coming in over the last several months that the craft category has probably gotten too crowded, um, and we've started to see some, some growth slowing. Um, you know, it's still growing, but at a much lower rate than people had seen in, in previous years. When I look at the numbers uh, of, of volume that these that craft breweries make, um, it's really a feast and famine. There's a huge long tail there. Like most breweries don't make very much beer at all, and there's a few breweries that make a lot of beer. Um, we've seen a lot of acquisitions happening now. Is that because... Uh, of this tightening and and uh, the sense that if if you're a if you're a larger craft brewery now um, you're a really valuable commodity because there's not so much room for growth is that why we're seeing that? Well, I think we're seeing a lot of transactions by the the, the large. I mean, the most most acquisitive has been Anheuser Busch. Um, you know, Miller Coors is 
is catching up and you see Constellation make one large purchase. Um, but I think the reason they're acquiring the brand is they, you know, they can't credibly go in uh, launching an authentic craft band that resonates with consumers um, themselves. I think you've seen that with what's happened with Shop Top um, and a little bit with Blue Moon lately. Um, you know, the, the perception is, is those are not true, authentic strong regional craft brands. So you've seen Anheuser-Busch and Miller Coors and others acquire brands that have traction regionally, um, if not nationally. Um, interestingly enough, you know, the largest craft brands out there, Samuel Adams and Sierra Nevada, have not been active in the M&A market. Um, and those are the, and they are, they're also starting to see some slowdown um, in their trends as well. So, you know, we do think ultimately there should be an evolution of consolidation among the crafts themselves. Um, And so we think that could be the next wave of transactions because ultimately, you know, Anheuser-Busch and Miller Coors will, you know, slow down their pace, whether it's mandated by the Department of Justice or just internally they feel they have a strong enough regional portfolio that they'll shift into execution mode. Um, and so we then think there is going to be, um, you know, a consolidation because there's a lot of there's a lot of capacity out there, um, and there's a, you know there are some strengths that these um, larger crafts can bring to the smaller crafts that would be very appealing in terms of you know uh, very strong sales forces, uh, regional marketing teams, and, and the like. So that that raises an interesting question uh, when uh, when we as consumers look at the market, we tend to think of things in terms of breweries we like, uh, beer styles we like. Um, when bigger breweries, when if you're looking to make an acquisition, how do you see uh, the market? Do you see it in terms of, of uh, regions? Like when you look at the map of the, the of craft, do you you know do you, do you gaze out at styles like this this brewery makes great IPA or a great porter? Um, or do you think in terms of regions, like this, this brewery is very strong in this region, um, brand strength? I mean, h- how do you, uh, h- how do they, uh, uh, a bigger beer company, how would it chop up the, the United States conceptually? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think it's, it's you know, it's honestly, it's some combination of all of those. I don't think it's, you can discount, you know, all, you know, three areas and just focus on one. I do think, you know, we, we tend to start when we look at an opportunity regionally um, and, and do look at where, where their regional footprint is um, and how strong the brand is performing in its region. Um, I think that's critical is to maintain, um, you know, strength in your home market. So we definitely do look at them regionally. And I think the big brewers that are out acquiring these brands look at it that way too. I mean, if you look at Anheuser-Busch's acquisitions, I mean, you can, you can pinpoint on a map um, there's not much overlap. Um, and you can pinpoint where the open spaces are. And then recently they just announced an acquisition in Texas, which was a clear clear hole in their portfolio. Um, but secondly, you know, I don't think you can discount brand um, because another just me too, local name, craft beer, IPA, XYZ, it is not that interesting. I think the brand has to, to stand for something. I think it has to have the ability to potentially be a national brand. I think you've seen that with, you know, an acquisition Miller Coors made like St. Archer. Um, I think recently Revolver has has that same potential. Ballast Point, obviously, um, with with Constellation. Those are those are 
fantastic brands, and there's a lot of thought that went into them. They stand for something, and they clearly resonate with consumers. Um, and so just, just the name of the city with, you know, some fields and streams and an IPA on it, it you know, there's a lot of those. And so I do think the brand is, is as important um, for the long-term strength, and especially in a, in a crowded shelf, um, you really have to stand out. Um, and the quality of the beer has to be good. I mean, there's a lot of not-so-great beer out there. Um, and so I think the quality of the beer, I mean, winning awards is important, but I think it's also the consumer consumer feedback and people are looking at, um, you know, beer ratings and things on, you know, the app to, uh, untapped and, and the like to really ensure that the quality is there. Um, the, you know, the other thing that's critically important for strategic acquirers is distribution footprint. Mm-hmm. Um you know, as you know, um, the laws are different by state, and if strategic acquirers cannot move the brand to their network or um, if the brand's not already in their network, um, that makes an acquisition very challenging for them to really get the synergies out of. So I would probably put those three things, this is the regional area, the brand, and the distribution footprint as the top three criteria. Interesting. So uh, the, the, this concept of, uh, of style importance, which I, I think is, in the consumer's mind, a pretty big deal. Um, you know, a brewery like uh, Sierra Nevada has a, a lock on the pale ale category. Is that a factor at all? Um, are you thinking of building a style portfolio? You know, like we'll have one brewery that does a pale, we'll have one that does an IPA, we'll do one that does a, you know, a, a, a nice pilsner. Uh, or is that just uh, something that can come later? Um, I think it's important, but it may not be quite as important in other beverage categories where people really are trying to fill a gap. And I think the reason is because most breweries have multiple brands and multiple Mm -hmm. styles. And so they're not – and actually, you know, we've seen pushback on the flip side if one style is too much of their portfolio, that there's risk there. Um, And so I do – and I do think – you know, as much as a, a leading, it's important to have a leading style. Um, but if that becomes 80% of your revenue, um, you know, and particularly an IPA, which is so competitive, I, I think that becomes hard for people. Um, you know, secondly, as important as having a leading style um, is, is it being, you know, is innovating and being able to show and demonstrate a continuous innovation pipeline because, as we've all seen, um, you know, new products are driving the growth as much as the core products. So I think that that balance has to be there. Right, that makes sense. Okay, we need to take a break to remind you uh, that Beervana is brought to you by Guinness. No matter which beer style is your go-to, there's a Guinness for you to enjoy. And by All About Beer magazine since 1979. Award-winning beer and brewery news, reviews, and insight, in print and online. Subscribe today at allaboutbeer.com slash subscribe. So uh, we'll get back to the interview in a second, but there's just a couple of comments I want to make. One is it's fascinating to think uh, about how much they are looking for, and not just an established, but sort of a successful brand. 
So I think a lot of brewers, when they start out, they're thinking about the beer, mm-hmm. and then the brand sort of comes along, and you think about. But uh, you know, if you if you're interested in being a being acquired by <laughs> by a big brewer, there's a few a few little tidbits of insight there. One, don't name your brand after your local town, right, or neighborhood, or <laughs> uh, come up with some sort of more generic name, but come up with something that's uh, that's going to be interesting and catchy and can be sort of. Uh, um, used as a as a marker for a, for a regional brewery. Yeah, and I think we sometime maybe we'll talk to a branding person. Brand is a, a, a kind of an obscure concept, and it's hard to know. Uh, like Carbach in Texas was just purchased. I don't know anything about Carbach, so right. it's, it's very difficult for me to know uh, how strong their brand is. It's not strong enough that I've heard about them in Oregon. Um, but uh, you know, Anheuser Busch went in there and they made some assessments and they looked at looked at the brand and 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 uh, how well it related to the the products they're making and all these different things. They made a calculation and apparently thought it was a strong brand. Yeah, well, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be uh, uh, a little bit snarky and say that yeah. <laughs> that that when Ten Barrel first opened in Oregon, I thought, what a terrible name for a brewery, Ten Barrel. That's awful. And then what's gonna happen when you grow beyond this tiny little brew pub and you become like a, a 500 barrel brewery? Yeah. Uh, and so it was one of the the few Oregon brewers uh, for whom I really disparaged their uh, their name and their branding. And lo and behold, I was completely off my rocker. I well, guess. and if you were going to find another one with a name that was nearly as generic, it would have been Hop Valley, which was purchased by uh, Miller Coors. Well, so that you, you know, I, I do wonder when when um, when those companies looked at these companies and assessed their brand mm-hmm. um, they were not looking at the name <laughs> i don't think they were looking beyond the name and so there was there had to be some other things they, yeah, were, they well, were interested right. in it's, it's probably precisely the fact that they're relatively generic and they yeah. don't sort of establish a particular time and place yeah. um so yeah uh, there you go there you go <laughs> all right well let's uh, let's get back to the rest of the interview and then uh, we'll talk after yeah all right, let's, let's think about if you're uh, looking at a brewery, how you assess uh, its viability as a member of the portfolio and how you assess its value. Um, what, you know, there are a lot of things you could think of about a, a brewery. There's the physical space and whether it's got, you know, what kind of capacity it has, what kind of brewery it has. Um, there's things that consumers don't see, like the company organization, you know, how if, if uh, the leadership is strong and, and um, the, the you know, the, the operations are fluid. Um, there are, uh, the, the, we've talked a lot about the brand. Um, then there's some, some breweries have properties like multiple pubs. Um, how, how do you, when you're assessing value of a particular brewery and viability, how, what do you look at? What do you, you know, what are the factors that go into all that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a combination, again, of, of many things. I think, um, you know, profitability, um, you know, Breweries are, while often um, per barrel multiples get reported, um, that's because that data is public. Um, You know, typically um, these breweries are really trading on an EBITDA multiple, Um, and so margin and profitability is critically important to to achieving, you know, a high multiple. Um, It's also, I would say, density in your core markets and select other markets with some white space opportunity for growth. A brand that's an inch deep and a mile wide, um, versus a brand that's a mile deep and an inch wide is going to be much more valuable. So, you know, for example, we've seen, you know, a lot of breweries have built out capacity and they see the slowing growth and just open a lot of new states. 
um, but they're not very deep in those states, and they have, don't have salespeople supporting the brand in those states. And that that brewery versus another brewery that may be in a very limited geographic footprint, but very deep and performing very well in that market, um, is much more valuable to an acquirer who can then see a path for growing that. Um, you know, beyond in the core continuing and, and beyond the core market. So I think, you know, the geographic footprint um, and, you know, penetration is really critical. Um, on the capacity side, I mean, that's a good question. I think, you know, if there's if you're always butting up against capacity and there's a significant investment that's going to be need, uh, need to be made to continue growth, that's going to, you know, impact value because someone's going to need to put a lot of money into Either expanding the, the facility at the current site, or, or finding a, a partner a partner to brew with, or opening another location. So, if you're ahead of the capex curve, where you've got room for growth and capacity, which also can demonstrate that you've got room to improve your efficiency and your margins, um, that's going to help your valuation as well. Um, the tap rooms, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think, and even more so today, that's becoming an important part of every every brewery's um, uh, local presence and, and building a brand presence. So I think people definitely like to see that. Um, they do tend to trade at a lower multiple. So what we've seen is buyers will bifurcate the profitability and say the wholesale business trades at this multiple and the taproom business trades at this multiple because ultimately the taprooms are capped, right? You only have the, as much beer as you can and people that you can – serve within those four walls, and so the growth just isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those do tend to discount maybe overall the multiple, but it's an important part of, I think, in today's environment in particular, any brewery's, um, you know, brand strength. You said something interesting uh, that I'm curious about, uh, about the, the deep, uh, deep and wide versus, or, you know, deep and narrow versus wide and shallow. How do you, aside from sales figures, is there some kind of calculation you can make or study you can make to determine brand strength in terms of, you know, how how deep that really is? Yeah, I know. I don't know that we've come up with an exact formula to say it, but, you know, we sort of know anecdotally, you know, if a brewery's doing, you know, X thousand barrels, let's say it's in doing 30,000 barrels, and they're in 20 to 30 states. So you're only, you know, and, and maybe a quarter of that is, is in their home market and the rest is really spread thin. You know, if you're only 1,000 barrels or a few hundred barrels in a state, that's that's pretty thin. Um, so what people like to see is you would much rather see you in a much smaller geographic footprint for really deep because then you know you're getting the support from your distributor, you're important to your distributor, um, and it's it's worthwhile for you at those thresholds to invest in that market and put salespeople in that market. If you're deep and you have enough margin to play with to be able to support the brand, because as this market gets increasingly competitive, if you're only out, you know, if you're out there with, you know, you're a tiny player in your your distributor's portfolio and you don't have a salesperson to support it, those numbers are, you know, are, are definitely a risk. Yeah. Uh, is is it is um, the length of uh, sales uh, a factor there? Like, you know, we've seen some breweries that have 
are quite well established, been around a long time, and have a certain you know volume. And then we see other ones that have grown very quickly uh, and built up volume. It seems like that latter case is less, you know, it's built on maybe a more sandy foundation. Is that does that factor in? Yeah, no, definitely it does. And we we look at that, you know, when we determine which clients we're going to take on. Um, and we've seen and we've recommended people not open new markets or pull back from markets where they're not getting the the support or the performance. And and actually, I mean, I saw with one client recently, they pulled out of a state that they were putting a salesperson in, and they were shipping it fairly far. So they realized they were losing money. Mm-hmm. Um, and But, you know, shifted that volume back to their home market, were getting a much higher margin and going much deeper in their home state. And it turned out to be their EBDA is higher as a result. So I think it's something, you know, everyone should really be taking a hard look at is that return on investment in every every new market that you open. Uh, okay, the, 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 the question I think everybody is really fascinated with, and I know you can't answer uh, specifically, but just in general, we've seen valuations when, when prices uh, have come out uh, that are radically different uh, for different breweries that don't seem to correspond to, uh, you know, thousands of barrels or, or anything else. Why do you think they're so disparate? And you know, is is there irrational exuberance, or, or what's going on with the valuation of these breweries that have been sold recently? Yeah, I mean, the the one multiple that was had the most public data out there was was Ballast Point because they had a S one on file for an IPO, so all of their numbers um, were public, and so that that multiple I think was the one you know the benchmark that a lot of people have looked at at over three thousand a barrel and like twenty seven times EBITDA. Um, that is definitely an outlier, but you had the unique circumstance of of a brewery with scale with incredibly high margins um, because of their price point they were getting in, in efficiencies and also you know triple digit growth and and the stocking horse of they were going to file to go public. So that was your competitive bid. Um, and so, you know, all those dynamics, you know, created a perfect storm of why they got the multiple they did. Um, and a brewery, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, I just apply that per barrel multiple to my brewery and I'm worth even at a slight discount. But the reality is, I mean, the, mo- the majority of transactions have been in a much narrower band um, of, call it, 15 to 20 times EBITDA and, you know, roughly 750 to 1250 a barrel or something. I mean, if you look at the vast majority of transactions, they're in that band. Um, and that band, I would tell you today, is starting to come down. Yeah, I was wondering um, about that. Yeah, 2015's numbers maybe make the future look a little bit uh, less uh, rosy than, than they did in, in, uh, or in 2016 than in 2015 or 2014. Yes. No, I mean, I think... I think those multiples, um, you know, they've been eye-watering for, for a year, a year and a half, and I think that given the slowdown in growth, um, you know, I think most buyers and investors that are looking at the category today are, are you know, discounting, um, you know, breweries' growth forecast into more reasonable estimates based on current trends, and, and in line with that, you know, the multiples are adjusting accordingly. Yeah, and, and uh, to be... Clear. You you were actually not involved in the Ballast Point transaction. Is that correct? No, we were not. Okay. Well, I think that's all I have. Is there anything else that I'm not asking that would help 
uh, illuminate this topic for people. Um, I'm kind of unsophisticated on these matters, and I know you're very sophisticated, <laughs> so I might be missing something. No, not at all. You're not unsophisticated at all. Those are all, all great questions, and um, I'm happy to talk to you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Um, we will. I think the listeners will be happy to have heard you. Great. Thanks so much, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. Well, that was fascinating. Good job, Jeff. Oh, thank you. She did all the heavy lifting, obviously. You asked as as good questions as I would, probably essentially the same questions I would. So, oh, good. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff in there. Um, first off, we should talk about uh, the multiple that she she referred to. Um, I'm not an investor, so I don't uh, get in, can't get into the specifics. But the multiple essentially is uh, the value of the enterprise um, uh, divided by uh, the earnings, taxes. Um, uh, depreciation amortization uh, so that gives you this idea of um, the uh, the current value versus the um, the I don't know flow of income yeah right it's a more accurate description of what the, the company is worth than just looking at the bottom line right yeah so it's it's both the sort of the the, the stock and the flow uh, um, as an economist would say it's the stock value of the current asset plus the sort of the the flows of of um, earnings that that it, that it generates gotcha um and it was interesting like she mentioned that thing about the the, the company that was losing money distributing to a foreign uh, to a dif- distant state that's like one of those negatives that you don't want to yeah. see a brewery doing well to, to, just just to give it a really simple explanation if you if a if a company that has uh, very low sales and sells for billions of dollars, like some tech companies <laughs> that you've seen, yeah, uh, that would be an extremely high multiple because it's the value is way above the sort of current earnings, um, right? And a very low multiple is that you value it um, uh, relatively low uh, relative to its current earnings. So what they're basically saying is that high multiple means that you think there's big growth out there, right? And a low multiple means you think maybe not so much growth. So that's what she's talking about. We've seen some pretty high multiples some pretty big valuations relative to their current earnings yeah uh, at least they're making beer and not have hosting chat online I mean, come on. <laughs> well yeah silicon valley taught us you don't actually have to have any earnings <laughs> to be incredibly valuable uh, you uh, can find me on twitter at oh never mind yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um so a couple of things i i wanted to touch on this um uh because we talked about this a little before and and i want to i want to go back to it which is which is one of the interesting things to me is um, you've she talked about early on with the big beer companies they tried to create their own sort of craft brands within their bigger brand and haven't done so well and even the ones that did do pretty well the few exceptions like the shock top and the blue moon mm-hmm. are showing some weaknesses um, now and so one of the questions I have is as an economist is you know will one day Sierra Nevada get so big that when they try to come out with new beers uh, they won't be less successful. Is that somehow antithetical to the craft beer ethos or the demand for craft beer? So in other words, is it the fact that it's Anheuser-Busch doing Shock Top or is it just the fact that it's a big, suddenly a big national brand but a craft brand? Like is big and national uh, antithetical to craft? Can you, can you not be both? Um, and if so, that means that sort of the big expansion of these craft uh, brewers like the Sierra Nevada and like the uh, Boston Brewing um, are sort of, you know, almost uh, consuming themselves by the tail, if you, if you get my drift. I do. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I, I don't think we know the answer to it. Um, my, I can certainly pontificate, which is 
what I do professionally. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think this goes back to that brand strength thing. It would be hard for me to imagine Sierra Nevada getting, uh, getting crosswise there just because they build such a strong brand. It's there in Chico. Um, as long as the Grossman family still controls it. You know, there's a lot of things about it that are great. Um, they always do things with the highest possible quality. You compare that to Boston Beer, where um, they've spread out into alcoholic, other weird alcoholic liquors and mm-hmm. things that they're doing. Um, they And that they started out as a contract brewing company. Like, right. there's a lot of these, these things. <laughs> the seeds that these companies started from were different. And so yeah, those two companies are quite different. I yeah. mean, you would you could you could argue, I think, reasonably well that Boston Brewing is really just a beverage company and not, you know, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, but it wasn't started by these little, you know, it wasn't started as a little brewery that, you know, that went and made, made good like Sierra Nevada. Um, well, and Jim Cook would probably argue with you, but the fact that you're saying that, I think, points to the, to the confusion that that brand has created by adding right. all these other companies. Yeah. So uh, the in economic in economics, um, I was trying to decide how how pedantic I want to get. Oh please, uh, we love pedants. They're our favorite people. In economics, we talk about firm theory, and, and one of the interesting things is, is sort of what what is the natural size of a firm, and I'll give you this sort of simple economic example, like. Um, how big does a firm need to be in order for, for example, them to do their HR stuff in-house, like to have your own HR department or to have uh, your own lawyers that you employ versus contracting out to uh-huh. do your HR from an outside firm or to do your law uh, with a law firm to outside firm. And it's sort of just what it, uh, interesting sort of um, what's better for Sierra Nevada to say, okay, we're a West Coast brewery and we're going to sell mostly in the West Coast, ship a little bit far. And then uh, Ken Grossman can go start a brand new brewery under a different name in North Carolina versus I'm going to just continue the Sierra Nevada brand out in North Carolina. I wonder what in the end is actually a smarter strategy. Now, starting something from scratch is really hard, but if you're well capitalized and you've got a good PR department, I bet Sierra, I bet Ken Grossman could probably start a pretty good, successful east coast craft beer brand so yeah. it's interesting to think about how what are really the economies of scale in um brand uh and pr um relative to the the sort of reticence to to consume mass mass produced beers and one thing we know about the beer market is that it can change on a dime and so that the thing that you need to be doing to be a successful business uh in one year may be the opposite of what you need to do later on. And one of the things that comes to mind is the focus on flagship. Mm-hmm. She said, uh, Nicole Fry in that interview said that if a brewery has 80% of their sales on one brand, that's a danger side for her, sign for her. Back in the 80s, when breweries were getting started, they were all trying to do that exact thing. In right. the 80s and 90s, that was the gold standard, like build the flagship. That's yeah. the whole brewery. And um, so that that stuff changes. And then... Yeah, and I think, I think one, one reason for that is that back then... Shelf space and tap space, tap handles were so scarce right. that you needed to be known for one. Like one beer was what you needed to get in front of people. And now the marketplace has matured and grown. I think there's more opportunities to get different beers in front of people and to just build the brand itself. The other thing she said that was really interesting was this sort of um, and you and you and you asked follow up question about it, which is um, deep and narrow versus uh, wide and shallow. Yeah, um, it was very interesting. So they really want they really want I don't know. I guess you could use a, uh, a political analogy. They want us big, big roots, strong roots, grassroots. They really want you to be really embedded in your in your local market, 
um, uh, before uh, or over having big reach. Like they don't care so much about big reach yet. They just want to make sure that they're buying something that's really deep into their home market, which is um, interesting. We were um, discussing uh, Ten Barrel's brand, but Ten Barrel is is definitely that kind of brewery. It was it was still very much an Oregon brewery. It's even not not even one of the big Oregon breweries, um, but had been very successful, made very good beer, number of very good beers, had a lot of buzz, and had very strong sales in Oregon. Yeah, and they had assembled a, a, a team of some of the best brewers in the state, mm-hmm. poached from other breweries, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of the dream team. And that helped them establish that reputation locally. Yeah, good. Yeah. Well, uh, why don't we move on to the next topic? Yeah, um, and let's drink some because, beer while we do it. Exactly. <laughs> these beers are just sitting in front of me enticingly. I know. They've been sitting here for an hour or however uh-huh. long we've been doing this. And uh, Time to drink. You and your lovely wife, who is a Mainer, yep. uh, went back to Maine over uh, the Thanksgiving holiday and uh, went in search of some of the mythical Maine IPAs. Yeah, the New England IPAs. So we, even, IPAs. we even went to, and you... we. Sorry, got a little. I gesticulated a little too yeah. there. If you heard that click, I apologize. Uh, I went. We stopped off at uh, Hill Farmstead on the way, yes. and you joked on email, "If you don't have Heady Topper, you don't have uh, the New England IPA." And the truth is, it's really hard to get Heady Topper, and it's not actually that close to Hill Farmstead. Um, Vermont is a tiny state, and you would think it would be easy to get around, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've traveled in New England quite a bit too, yeah. and you know that. Man, Vermont, for as tiny a town or a state as it is, is really hard to get from one place to the other. So there's no, we do not have Heady Topper, topper in front of us. Um, but we spent most of the time in Maine after we left Hill Farmstead, um, where there is uh, a couple of famous beers by Maine uh, Beer Company called Lunch and Dinner, which people will know. Um, there's a local company there called Bissell Brothers, which has entered the market really strongly, and they are making. Um, these same kind of beers they're very popular mm-hmm. uh and down in massachusetts um treehouse and trillium are doing the same kind of thing also really hard to find um at uh i think it's treehouse maybe trillium it's one of those two you can only buy it at the brewery which is super typical which was weird because ev- here in oregon we're talking about these styles of beer all the time everybody talks about main main beer uh and their lunch uh particularly lunch and dinner I assumed it would be really easy to find these beers. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to go pack my suitcase full of these and bring them back and share them so people could try them from the source and we could all have a discussion about what this style means and what it is and have a very different discussion than the one that we're going to have, which is I couldn't even find the damn thing, <laughs> which blew my mind. Um, so I did find uh, Main Beer Company does do these one-offs and their IPAs, uh, they're, they're called the beer program and they have them one through five right now. And I have a, uh, number four, which is a hoppy IPA. Uh, and it sounds very, um, very new Englandy. It's made, uh, with cascade, Simcoe, Meridian and Equinox hops. So that ought to be bright and juicy. And, um, we nice. will talk about this. The I main, the main beer company is from where in Maine? Uh, Freeport, Maine. Uh, I Freeport. Think. Yeah, Freeport. Mm. So not not so far from Portland, but right. not in Portland. Um, most of Maine, most of Maine's population, as you also know, because you have big Mainer connections, is in the southern part of the state. Like most of the north is completely unpopulated. That's right. My my family, my Boston family, have the the stereotype. My Boston Brahmin family have the stereotypical. Uh, piece of land on the coast of Maine outside of Blue Hill 
<clears throat> lovely area it is. And you go up there and eat clams on the beach. I go up there and have a clam bake. That's right. Pretty cool. All right. So while I'm pointing this out, um, I will say I, I sent you an email and said, this is totally blowing my mind. Because here in Portland, our Portland, uh, if a beer is selling well, like Boneyard RPM went through and some of the uh, Breakside IPAs went through, they ramp up production and make sure that we can get their beer. It mm-hmm. is not obscure. Like what seems like normal economics are at play, you know? Yep. There's a demand and the supply ramps up. Yep. Um, uh, and by the way, I should, you know, uh, you probably forget this. And actually, partly because the conversation actually never, I, uh, Vermont Public Radio a couple of years ago called me up and had me on one of their, oh, yeah, I remember that. their shows. And the point was to talk about exactly, exactly this. Um, we're just blundering all over oh, the yeah. place. <laughs> we're going to lose our sponsor right away. <laughs> and this is before I've even opened the beer. I mean, it's terrible. Uh, uh, they wanted to talk about the Hetty Topper phenomenon, precisely. They're like, let's, right. let's talk about what, why the heck you can't find Hetty Topper and why they don't make more. Um, so I was all prepared to talk about that then, but the conversation actually never got there. We ended up chatting about oh, really? the future of the beer, actually kind of what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to have a completely satisfying answer for you, um, but I gave you some ideas, some theories that I had. One was that I thought it was a very good answer. Um, there is this there is this theory in economics called um, status goods or uh, Veblen goods, if you really want the the term of art, uh, which is that people demand these goods precisely because of their scarcity, because of precisely because of the status they confer if you if you're one of the lucky ones to actually find a heady topper so i'm willing uh to pay more to get those now it's sort of unseemly to have a craft brewer gouge you know and all of a sudden they could probably charge 30 bucks a six pack for a heady for a heady topper if they wanted right Um, but then they'd get a lot of bad bad press and bad pr so the price that i pay is having to search it out and having to wait for it and having to go through lots of hoops to get it uh, Jeff is looking very pleased with his. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Beer four with my beer four from Maine Beer Co. Ooh, yeah. It I didn't a, mean to, I didn't want to interrupt you. It, uh, That's why I was being silent and only expressive. On well, my we can face. get back to my worthless thoughts. Let's actually talk about the beer. The beer is come on, man. Cloudy. Veb, your Veblen okay. curve or whatever it is. So uh, uh, the so, Veblen hypothesis. What's it called? The Veblen what? A Veblen good, a status good. It's easy to talk about status good. So uh, the the scarcity itself confers a status on the owner or on the consumer in this case. And so um, one of the reasons I'm so excited and I enjoy Hetty Topper so much is precisely because it's scarce and I was able to finally find it and try it. Um, uh, so that's one aspect. So partly the demand is driven by its very scarcity. Uh, in other words, if they made a whole bunch of it, they're like, oh yeah, Hetty Topper's good, but there's six five other really good IPAs in New England so you know in the end (laughs) so uh, and then it's a really good PR right it's really it's that's they've got people talking about Hetty Topper all over the the world all over the US certainly within the beer geek community Um, and that's worth enormous amount of money in terms of uh, advertising you couldn't buy that kind of good PR so it's a really uh, it turns out to be a really good thing and so there's probably a lot of calculations and then the third thing I would say is just that you know ramping up production isn't always easy mm-hmm. it can it can mean big capital investments and if you go whole hog and you know 
increase the size of your brewery by 10 uh, uh, and go into big debt to do so. And then suddenly, you know, the buzz is off heavy topper. Right. You're could be screwed. So I think there's a number of reasons why it makes sense that these beers remain scarce, but now it's time for me to try this beer. Yes. So I, while you're drinking that beer, I'll say that uh, the New England IPA is apparently this uh, style of beer that is known for its um, intense uh, fruitiness, low levels of bitterness, and um, almost uh, like it's opacity. It's really, really cloudy, cloudy opacity. Mm-hmm. And this beer, I think, hits most of the marks. It is it is not. Um, it is a normal level of haziness for an IPA. Yeah, but it's but it's cloudy as hell. But it's maybe sure. not like it's not super um, murky. Yeah, not I super not murky. Call it murky. It's it's still reasonably bright. Um, a lot of light shines through. It's got a lovely creamy head. It really had an amazing head, and it is really good. <laughs> <laughs> it is really, it's really darn good. I have to say, Main Beer Co. is a brewery that I discovered when they first came out years years ago mm. when I was visiting as a visitor every wow. couple of years. And I was surprised to hear that they were the hottest brewery, um, uh, and it's just because of this. I mean, they, they all their beers are good. They make really exceptional beers, but now these are the beers people want. That is fantastic. That is really good. <laughs> Patrick is the resident uh, IPA oh, uh, man. aficionado. That's kind of, you know, that's, that's reasonably bitter, by the way. It is. That's, and if you asked me... Is this a New England IPA? I would say that's a really good example of an American IPA. Yeah, it's um, you know if I if we gave this to a, a Portlander and said name the state that came from, I bet for sure they'd say it came from Oregon. But yeah, it's got a really good fruity floral uh, aroma and uh, a very full mouthfeel, very soft uh, mouthfeel. The bitterness comes later on the back of the tongue. Yeah, it, and it, it's just a just a wash and sort of fruity floral taste. Yeah, um, and the. I actually like a little bit of bitterness to back these things up, even though they're wonderful. Uh, the, the, the fruity flavors, I get why you want those saturated, rich, fruity flavors. But that spine of bitterness that comes in at the end makes every makes all those things pop. Otherwise, they feel a little flabby to me. And yeah. Well, what I would say is that if it just if it's all sort of sort of sweet, more sweet, fruity flavors that remain on your tongue, mm-hmm. they can kind of almost end up being cloying a little bit because they just don't go away. And so having that sort of bitter wash. Mm-hmm invites yet another big gulp of intense fruit flavor right that's right <clears throat> so yeah it's this true. one does it perfectly it really does it's got um in case you want to buy this and you should because you can actually go into a, a bottle shop and find one of these things <laughs> i walked into this bottle shop i asked about main beer and he said well obviously we don't have lunch or dinner <laughs> and this is the first one of the the ongoing clues i had to the weirdness of this whole scene um so anyway obviously you can't get that but you can get this beer right now in portland maine and i recommend it it's a really nice beer yeah yeah um why don't you open the other one okay uh i will and i'll tell the tale of the other one this other one no one's gonna have heard of and that's kind of intentional because since i couldn't find any of these i asked the guy at the craft i think it's called the craft beer company craft beer cellar um they're on commercial avenue in, in portland maine um What's the next hot beer that nobody's had yet um, that I can actually buy? <laughs> that's not that's obviously not gone. And he he handed me this beer, which is um, uh, for, called Lone Pine Brewery. They're from Portland, Maine, and uh, this is the Brightside IPA. And I think they opened less than a year ago, so they're. Um, you, you know we're getting we're getting in on the ground floor here yeah so uh just in appearance it's um the head is thinner than the 
Yeah. Uh, the main beer company. It's slightly hazier, although a similar color, sort of a straw. It is murkier, though. It is murkier. Yeah. And this is a, one of those things, maybe one day we'll do an entire podcast on haziness or the New England IPA. Because um, there's a big question about whether haziness should be a prized uh, quality. And I know many people see that and they think that it's going to taste great because it's hazy. Um, I'm an old man and I came up when breweries at least made a gesture to clarify their beers. <laughs> so it looks murky to me. It looks a little like pond water. I think most beer geeks would say, oh yeah, that's the stuff. I like I like a good murky beer. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yep. You're uh yeah. You're more you're I think you're more I remember, typical I, that way. I remember sitting uh looking over um I was in Bellingham, Washington, looking over the bay and the, out into the San Juan Islands at sunset. Uh, and drinking um, my first Boundary Bay, I don't know what they call it. This their IPA. Or mm. Maybe they've changed it over time, but it was it was hazy, floral, wonderful. And um, ever since then, I've sort of been in love with hazy beers. That's interesting. So I would say this probably qualifies more as a uh, classic New England IPA style. It's um it's got quite a bit of body and mouthfeel, mm-hmm. uh, which helps accentuates the very sweet notes of these hops. These hops yeah. are really sweet, and they create. Um, I know it had Falconer Flight, which is a blend that's made here in Oregon, named after Glenn Falconer, uh, an unfortunately uh, deceased now brewer down out of now, now defunct brewery. Uh, that's right. That's true. <laughs> um, but anyway, those come from here, and it's and Citra. But man, is that juicy? That is one juicy beer. It is juicy, but um, uh, but how would you describe the aroma? I almost it was almost slightly stanky. Take a take a sniff. It's got both an aroma and flavor that I don't, I can't identify. It's really particular, but I can't quite. Yeah. Maybe stanky? I don't know. Like a durian stanky? Yeah, well, not so much a durian stanky, more like a sort of a ganja kind of stanky. I'm not getting any ganja. Mm. It's all, you know how tropical fruit yeah, can. Maybe a little bit durian stankiness. Mm. That's true. There's sometimes when you're in the jungle, you in, encounter these sweet notes that are almost so overripe that they're mm-hmm. stanky. I get a little bit of that out mm-hmm. of there. Yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, that one's much less bitter. Yeah. Much sweeter. Uh, very smooth. Mm. Also good. Also good. I think I think that um, this... There, we have a local uh, editor here in town called Martin Sismar, who has been one of the main proponents of uh, the New England style IPA, uh-huh. and I bet, bet he would fall over for this. I think he think, would think this is the best beer he ever had. Mm, yeah, it's very good. Um, mm. I would stick with the main beer co, just because I like that little knife that you have there. If I had to the choose, blade, if I had to choose, bitterness. I'd probably take the main beer company. For me, the one the one knock I'm having on this Bright Side IPA, I'm, I like the flavor a lot. The aroma, to me, is a little bit off the flavor, so my nose and my mouth aren't agreeing uh, entirely, hmm. um, which is interesting. I don't often have that experience. It's um, true. But the flavor is great. Especially since uh, flavor is aroma, so yeah. it's weird that your orthonasal Assessment is different than... It's kind of like a durian, right? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Everything about the durian was toxic, yeah. (laughs) So uh, to go back to the scarcity thing, one question I would have um, is, what's the chicken and the egg here? Are these kinds of beers valuable and wanted because they're scarce, or are they scarce because the demand is so high? Oh yeah, I don't think that there is a chicken in the egg. I think that the two go, the two go hand in hand. Um, 
That was a very dismissive uh, response. I appreciate that. No, no, no. I just mean that, that no, well, it was just dismissive because we have these kinds of things in economics all the time ah. where we're trying to figure out, you know, the causal link, you know, which with the direction of the causality. Right. And often it's an equilibrium phenomena. It's, you know, um, they go hand in hand. So uh, I think that um, the point of status goods is that they really go hand in hand. So that the scarcity drives more demand, more demand drives more scarcity. And, and so they're self uh, self-reinforcing mm-hmm. um, and so you just become to this sort of I don't know virtuous spiral of of status and and uh, goodness in beer um, I would I would love I mean New England has an amazing uh, diversity of beer styles I would say that that this the state of Maine is second only to the state of Oregon in terms of quality of beer in my experience um, and that's slightly more informed by my my beer tour last year Uh but you find so many other beers that are not beer geek fans, fan favorites right. that are being made there, and they're all really, really well. Not all of them, obviously, but there's many amazing beers in Maine. And I'm wondering, and this is just something, maybe in two years, if we're still doing the podcast, we'll get back together after my next trip, and we'll talk about uh, where these beers are. Are these beers now regular features on the market, or was this a blip, and they've they've vanished again? Yeah, I wonder if we have any sort of West Coast... Um uh, exemplars that have predated like the Pliny the Elder uh, phenomena. I mean... Do you think it's still a thing? Is Pliny the Elder still a thing? Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, people love Pliny. I yeah. mean, I, I think... No, I know. I mean, it's great beer. I just mean, do you think that the, the buzz is still the same? I think so. I think it's when, when still you see... It's super scarce and people are going to line up for it and wait overnight in front of their brother shop. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I think if Pliny is on tap, people are going to buy that beer. Yeah. They're going to be really excited. To yeah. see that beer, I I, I am when yeah. I see it on tap. I mean, it's not really shipped very far away mm-hmm. from uh, uh, the brewery, and one of the places they ship it is Oregon. So I do get to see it. We do yeah. get to see it here from time to time. It's great. So it's um, kind of it's the kind of thing that might have legs then. So it's might you know it's another reason why you might. Want well, it. I think it will have legs because I think that these are some of the most interesting and amazing beers. And I'm I'm gonna leave aside the new england ipa because i found beers like this all over the country well that's what i mean and so i mean there's a bit of a crowding out right so if everybody's too focused on heady topper then what about the other six fantastic yeah like bright side here saturated ipas um yeah i almost feel like this bright side if it had a a main beer company label on it and i handed it to people they would consider it you know sacred water or something right. just you you combine what what is this really quality beer with the cachet of, of yeah. main beer co and so, so i guess that's what i meant and what i was thinking about the Pliny the elder thing which is Pliny the elder is great it's great beer it's still a great beer there's a lot of good beers that are similar to it now um but it doesn't have that they still there's still this aura mm-hmm. right and so the aura is just an amazing thing it's 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 you know it's marketing gold yeah i think I think some beers will continue. And, I, you know, I would say even, and this is one, one reason why, that, to bring this back to the earlier conversation we have, I think Sierra Nevada still has a little bit of that aura. And mm-hmm. when you buy a pale, there's some little thrill you have knowing how important this beer is, how good this beer is. Um, you can taste the history in it. There's some little thrill there that, you know, uh, I, I think that continues to buoy that brand. So yeah, I right. think I think they have long legs if you can come with one of these kind of beers. That may be true, and it may also be true that you're just old. Well. <laughs> and so that Sierra Nevada that has, certainly a, true. has a resonance with you. <laughs> and maybe not so much with the 20-something craft beer drinker. I don't know. Uh, I throw it to the 20-something craft beer drinker who I'm certain listened to this podcast in Legion. Um, what is your attitude towards Sierra Nevada Pale? Do you think of it as uh, uh, do you have, give it some 
quality you think of it as a quality product that is uh you know enhanced by its long reputation or, or it is it your dad yeah is it exactly. your dad's beer and like old thing and don't want to try that anymore That's exactly it. please tell us we would love to hear from because you because i'm beginning to suspect that we're now the dads and the beers we drink are no longer cool. well i am childless but we are definitely dad age and you sir are really getting into your your dadhood <laughs> yeah so. but i'm younger than you so keep that in mind <laughs> all right we probably better move this along so uh good stuff interesting interview um let's turn now to the mailbag yes we just have uh, a quickie mail the mailbag suffers uh, partly because we have our our podcasting has suffered due to uh scheduling constraints so um we only have one that i'm going to throw out here today but uh it's actually a question to us and something we would like to throw to the the reader the listener um it comes from peter hanlon and i don't know that I knew where he came from, but Peter says, uh, he asks a question about, um, breweries outside the United States. Um, I found the beer scene, uh, here in Colombia, uh, where he goes to work, mm -hmm. uh, not just Colombia, but South America to be lacking compared to the U S I know there is some interesting stuff going on in Latin America, but it's not well publicized in the U S with Patrick's knowledge of Brazil. I would love to see a pod on the developing craft market in Latin America. And I would love to do that podcast, but we are ignorant so it would be great if somebody out there who is familiar with this uh who is familiar with anything south of uh, new, the new mexico border yeah. um let us know we would love to we will interview you and we'll you'll have you tell us about where the markets are where they're going what the structural bound uh, barriers are everything the yeah. is our ingredients easy to get we'd love to know all that yeah. stuff i know a fair amount of what goes on in brazil but i have no idea how representative that is of other parts of latin america so yeah so colombians if you happen to be a colombian listening to this and you know anything about your local market give us a, a ping we will we would love to interview you yeah yeah we really like to know what what's going on in other parts of the world in the craft beer scene so um and latin america is a big dark box for us it really is so please please do uh beer shirt i see you have a shirt on here I do. I'm going to toss one out uh, since we just were doing these uh, these beers. Mm -hmm. When I was in town, I did get uh, in in Portland, Maine. I did get to try the Bissell Brothers, um, which I'd had uh, one time previously, but I was really particularly looking for them. This you time. say the Bissell Brothers, so presumably this is another one with buzz. Uh, it is. Okay. Yeah, they do have local buzz. Yeah, Bissell Brothers Lux. I had the Lux. They ha their their really famous one is the Substance Ale, which mm -hmm. I also had, but it didn't have that that bitter spine that I liked quite. To the degree that the uh, Lux had, which is it's a rye IPA, and it had everything was in greater balance and harmony, and it actually was quite, um, quite a close brother to this main beer company mm -hmm. beer that we're having, and uh -huh. it was really good. So if you're in Portland, Maine, um, I found it at the Mash Ton, which is a pub in downtown, and it's a great little pub that I'd never seen before. I usually go to Navarre Res. I'm giving a lot of call outs to Portland, Maine. You guys. Somebody, right. somebody better send me, yeah, somebody send me some beer or something. <laughs> uh, Navarre Res is, has long been one of my favorite brew, uh, pubs in the world. It's mm -hmm. spectacular. So I stumbled across this other one and because the, they, they were advertising, we have Bissell Brothers, two Bissell Brothers plus, including the Substance Ale. So I tucked in there fast and got myself a couple of Bissell Brothers. And I liked the Lux. It so was, it was as advertised. Huh? It was. It was. Right. It was top-notch well my recommendation is just uh from a, another personal anecdote which is over the uh thanksgiving weekend we had my in-laws up and i had one of these great beer experiences where oh, uh my both my mother and father-in-law particularly my mother 
in law. My father in law is a little bit more adventurous, but my mother in law and father in law both are, um, you know, raised on macro loggers, have sort of moved into slight light imports, Heineken, maybe Beck's, that kind of stuff is typically what you'd find in there. And my mother in law is very that's a small, that's baby steps. It's very conservative, it's a very conservative <laughs> sort of light lager drinker, not not into big flavors. Um, so I brought home uh, Ninkazi's Hellas Bells. Nice, yeah. And they loved it. Yeah. They just loved it. We were just blown away by a beer that could both be sort of light and very approachable, very drinkable, but have so much more flavor than a typical one. And it is. I haven't had it in a few years, and I've forgotten. It is a really, really good beer. Yeah, it is. Uh, so Ninkazi's Hellas Bells uh, is my beer shipper recommendation for that one reason. I think it's probably pronounced Hell's Bells, but, you know. Well, no, I get it, but. I figure for the, the uninitiated, you probably want to know <laughs> that it's a Hellas. Uh, yes. um, uh, the other um, uh, part of that uh, was that um, they they quickly uh, drank right through the six-pack, like the first night. Nice. And then we went out looking for more. It was so hard to find. We could, it took us a while to get some more. Ah. Right? But they just... They well, just, that's a request to... Eugene to get on it. Get, yeah, get, man, us some, on. get us some Hellas up here. Well, I think it's more the stores. They're stocking the wrong kind of stuff. Too much IPA, not enough Hellas. I know, and we've already learned. 33% growth in these kind of beers. So come on, man. Get on the stick. That's right. So uh, well done, Nkazi, and um, that was fun. Uh, I always love those experiences. Yeah, me too. All right, so thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, in uh, going out, we have to remind you that uh, one final time that Beervana is brought to you by Guinness. For a limited time, you can now try their unexpected brews, Guinness Antwerpen Stout and Rye Pale Ale. And by All About Beer magazine. Since 1979, award-winning beer and brewery news, reviews, and insight. In print and online, subscribe today at allaboutbeer.com slash subscribe. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, I'm really now actually going to have to go out and, and find these beers and try them. I think actually part of our sponsorship should maybe be some some samples of these beers. Um, That's right. How are we going to talk about them? Except I can say something about Antwerp and Stout, which I had when I was in Dublin, visiting the Guinness Brewery Ooh. in the spring. Well done. It's a it's a beer that uh, was shipped to a particular bar in Antwerp uh-huh. uh, and has been for decades. Oh. And it is the biggest, burliest beer they make. It's 8%. It's even stronger than uh, Four and Extra Stout. Right. And it is... Um, Four and Extra Stout, for people who are familiar with that beer, has a noticeable diacetyl note, mm-hmm. which sweetens it and makes it a little bit rounder. This lacks that. Mm-hmm. This is roasty and al- and boozy. It's a big, burly beer, and probably not the kind. Of, if, you, if you've only drink, drunk uh, Guinness Draft, um, mm-hmm. this would not be, be, be surprised by this beer. Right. So, right. And I, I did not have even a full pour of it. Um, I had it at their pub, and we were going through a bunch of different beers, so I actually wouldn't mind having a whole beer and see what it's like. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to go out now and try the Nitro IPA and the Blonde and all the other stuff. I so. know, oh, and I haven't had any of those other ones. So, there All right, go. well, we got to do our due diligence. <laughs> okay, uh, so once again, Jeff blogs at Beervana and at All About Beer and writes for All About Beer magazine. He tweets at Beervana. And Patrick blogs at Beeronomics actively and tweets at Beeronomics. Um, yes. Yeah, and if you'd like to send us feedback, uh, email at the underscore beer act at yahoo.com or visit the Beervana blog Facebook page, um, which is where often we get comments. So just go there and, and, and click away and leave your comments. Yeah, and if you have a question, you can leave it there or you can email us. But please do. Um, we'll try to be back in two weeks with a regularly scheduled blog that's right and in fact we will be talking we can even tease next the next time we're going to be talking to tom shellhammer uh who is a hops researcher down at osu colleague of patrick that's right yeah and um who i still have not yet met 
Well, we're going to rectify that, and we're going to introduce looking, him not really, only to you, but everybody. Looking, looking forward to it. Yeah. Very excited. So it'll be, a, I think, a great time. All right. So I'm going to pick up, which one am I picking up? I'm picking up the Bright Side IPA, I think. All right. I'll do the main beer co, All and right. uh, we'll, we'll go out with a hearty cheers. Yeah. All right. So would you. All right. See you, Patrick.